Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here into these spaces this morning, and we pray that you would grant us your Holy Spirit of illumination in these moments. Heavenly Father, we trust and confess that the same Spirit to whom we're praying now inspired that this very early scripture be written, and so we wish to understand. Thank you, O Lord, that the same Spirit to which we're praying for illumination is also the Spirit of resurrection. Spirit, you raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus, thank you for your welcome that you give to anyone and everyone by grace and grace alone, by virtue of your work on the cross for us. Assure us of your great love and your presence and your forgiveness in your life. Now we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Early this summer, I was at my parents' place, and that is the repository of all of the yearbooks for my brother and me that were accumulated over our years of lower school, middle school, and high school. Eric was talking about the black tie event, optional, for Liberty Youth coming up. Went to a very preppy K-12 Episcopal High School in New Orleans. We had a dress code that often featured coat and tie, and I loved every second of it. The yearbooks were great, too. But... If you have some yearbooks in your past, your best yearbook, hopefully, is your senior year, right? Because, and I think this is typical of a lot of yearbooks, when if it's your senior year, all the seniors in the class, you get part of the page, right? And that's where, at least for my yearbook, all of the seniors each year, you get a glamour shot, your glamour shot, you get a paragraph that you're able to write yourself, and that's where you talk in oblique terms about all of the crazy things that you and your friends did that were so much wilder than anybody else has done in the history of the world. You get to announce and affirm your undying, always and forever love 
to the guy or girl you started dating just a week before you had to turn in copy for the yearbook, and then you also get to pick a couple of quotes. Here are mine. I had two of them, and you can probably guess at least the source or the person from which one of those quotes came, namely Bruce Springsteen, singer-songwriter from New Jersey. At the time, everybody knew I was a big Bruce fan then and now, and so I get teased a little bit. Hey, Jim, what are you going to do for your senior yearbook quotes? Are you going to do Bruce Springsteen? Are you going to do something like, baby, we were born to run, or I was born in the USA? And I would reply, no, but I am considering the last line from another song, Thunder Road, that says, it's a town full of losers, and I'm pulling out of here to win. <laughs> and I went, hey, wait a second. But I didn't go in that direction either. My Bruce quote was a pull from the last song of Bruce's first album, a deep cut. It's hard to be a saint in the city. Prime gym right there. Second quote came from Latin class. And this is a quote that nobody knows exactly where it came from, so it's an unattributed quote, but it bounced around in Roman antiquity. And I thought then, as I think now, it's a quote that's a little on the nose, but I can't quit this quote. Doom Spiro, Sparrow. Doom Spiro, while I breathe, Sparrow, I hope. While I breathe, I hope. I'm a homer for hope. Sue me. That's why I love Star Wars so much. Star Wars hope fuels the rebellion. The name of the first Star Wars movie, episode four, A New Hope. And for Star Wars, at least with me, it's metatextual in the sense that I always have hope that they'll put out better quality products over time to, to, to keep my allegiance, although and or primo right now. Captain America. I'm a huge Captain America fan from comic books way, way back. I was looking over again the Infinity Gauntlet saga in the comics, upon which the Infinity Saga in the MCU was based. And at one point, Captain America, who in the comics has only apex human strength, no super or enhanced powers of any kind, stands up to the big bad guy Thanos and says, as long as there is one man who stands against you, you cannot claim victory. I'm a homer for hope. Hope is great. Hope tells a great story, but it's more than that as well. Hope is vital for us to function as human beings, as people. A book that I read earlier this year, Haruki Murakami, 1Q84, one point we find this. This is what it means to live on. When granted hope, a person uses it as fuel, as a guidepost to life. We use hope, we need hope, as fuel, as a guidepost for life. And if you agree that we need hope, then hope is really important. If you're here this morning as a committed follower of Jesus or no, welcome either way. Where is your hope coming from? From where do you draw your hope? Whether personally, if you have a family, familially, nationally, globally, what are you hoping in? Is it worthy of your hope? Will that hope hold up for you? Newsflash, I think I mentioned back in October at some point, I had seen a statistic, and a statistic is a statistic treated for what it is, but 
It was apparently a really big survey, scientific and all of that, that pessimism among Americans is at an all-time high as far as these things have been recorded. Three quarters of people in America are not hopeful, but instead are very pessimistic about the future of our country. Hope not doing great right now. But here we are, as has been mentioned many times in the worship service so far, at the beginning of Christmas or Advent season. Advent means coming or arrival, when the church anew looks to Bethlehem, the birth of Jesus, as we await his second coming as well. And Advent is a season that's all about hope. In fact, that's week one, the first Advent candle focuses on hope. So it's a natural point at which to ask the question again, what are you hoping in? From where does your hope come? And I've mentioned this in previous Advent seasons about Advent, about the Christmas season. It makes things better and it makes things worse for you, depending. It's an intensifier. Christmas season, Advent, for the things that are going great in your lives, they seem that much better. For the things that are not going great in your lives, they're that much worse. So if it's a romantic relationship, for example, and you're falling in love or falling more in love, during Christmas, there's mistletoe everywhere. He becomes more handsome. She becomes more beautiful. But if you're falling out of love, during the Christmas season, there's mistletoe everywhere, and it's not a good thing. He becomes more annoying. She becomes more petty. Or for anything, for job, or health, or friends. If it's good, it gets better, it feels better, but then also the opposite. And here's one of the main ways that I think about the Advent season. An image comes to mind, didn't originate with me, it's a common one for Advent, but it persists in my imagination. This is how, one of the primary ways, I think about Advent. It's like a single candle burning in a dark room. At the end of the sermon, I'm going to do some liturgical dance that emulates a flame. I have my ribbons right here. It's going to be great. But now just picture it. Big dark room. Candle. The whole chiaroscuro thing. Light and dark. And you see both if you're focusing in on that candle. It's a big room and really dark. You don't just see the light, but you feel the dark. And think of those times where you've actually focused on a flickering candle. The flame darts. It moves. Sometimes it contracts. It shrinks. And you wonder, is it going to make it? But then on the other hand, that candle is not extinguished. The flame persists. Kind of like hope. And for the one verse that we're going to spend most of our time in here this morning from the passage that I read from Genesis chapter 3, I think of this verse like that candle flickering in the night. It flickers. Might look a little faint sometimes but it's still burning with hope. So two parts from here, from Genesis chapter 3, hope tentative, and then hope fulfilled. The main verse that we're going to be focusing on here this morning is Genesis chapter 3.15. It's been called, and you've heard me use this word before, the proto-evangelium. Proto first, evangelium, announcement. 
And traditionally in the church, for many interpreters, this is considered, in all of the scriptures, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, third chapter in, the first prophetic announcement looking ahead to the Messiah to come fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. I will put enmity, God says, to the serpent between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, if you want a fuller treatment of this passage, we're really going to focus on verse 15 mainly here this morning. If you want a fuller, more balanced treatment, Eric Mitchell actually preached on the second part of Genesis chapter 3 earlier this year. It's online. You can go back and listen to that sermon. But a little bit of context. What's happened so far in Genesis chapter 3, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they have fallen. They ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where God said, don't eat of it. They did the first sin. And if that was the fall, here comes the fallout. And no getting around it, this is a dour passage with a lot of judgment in it. But on the other hand, as I look at these judgments and as they carry forward today, they sort of explain our world. There's words in here about problems and pain and toil in the domestic sphere. There is wording here about problems and pains and toil outside of the home. And it's announced to us about the last enemy, death. Death is in the world. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. But if this is overall a dour passage with a lot of judgment, for generations, millennia even, it's verse 15 that has intrigued both Jewish and Christian interpreters of this passage. Because it doesn't seem to fit. It, it stands out. It, it's not judgment on the present. It looks forward to the future. But what's it saying? Is there hope here in this verse or not for us? Now let's click on the present again. Reality check. Hope is really tentative in our world right now. Not a newsflash. Earlier this fall, I read a long-form article by a journalist named George Packer, who pretty early on during the, inv the invasion of Ukraine from Russia went to Ukraine, and the reason that he did it was he said, I want to see human beings be heroes again. And it was, it's a really moving article. In the very beginning, he says how pessimistic he is about our country. I'll read it to you in just a moment here. And George Packer is a progressive, and he mentions here a couple of progressive bugaboos, but if you're somebody that's more conservative than George Packer, if you sub out a couple of those progressive bug bugaboos with conservative ones, I think this quote may fit everybody in the room. It goes like this. In the days before my trip, I had a feeling of nausea that I recognized as dread. Not of the place I was going, but of the place I was leaving behind. Of the Let's Go Brandon signs, and the school board showdowns, and the next mass shooting. The prospect that our experiment and people coming over from all over to run their own affairs together was finished. For the first time in my life, I felt hopeless about America. Because I have no transcendent beliefs, the loss of this earthly one left a void of meaning that made me sick. Deeply pessimistic. A couple of other voices here, too. So if hope is hard to come by, we haven't given up the fight. We keep searching for hope. It's wired into how God has made us. It's in our DNA. A scholar at Columbia University, Andrew Del Banco, put it this way. We must imagine some end to life that transcends our own tiny allotment of days and hours. If we were to keep at bay the dim, back-of-the-mind suspicion that we are adrift in an absurd world. 
And especially if there's no God, no heaven above, no hell beneath, if it's all just matter spinning and spinning and spinning, from my perspective, that means that we are adrift in an absurd world, but we look for hope anyway. And last voice that I'll use at this point, another book that I read earlier this year, it's called Hell of a Book by Jason Mott. It's won some awards recently. It's by a black author about a black author who's on a book tour, but it's also a book within the book. We're reading the book that the author in the book is on the book tour about, and that book within the book is about a young black boy in the rural South named Soot who sees his dad gunned down by police on his own front lawn. And after that tragedy has occurred, Soot, who's not a person of faith, comes into a church meeting that's trying to make some sense and grieve and find some hope after this shooting. And it's a beautiful passage. I'll read it to you here in a moment. But to me, it also points to the Achilles heel of a worldview that says, this is all it is. So it didn't know it then, but he was becoming a believer. Not in God, as the reverend of the church-bound Southern community might have wanted, but he was becoming a believer in stories. He saw there in the wake of his father's death that a story could take away pain. He saw smiles, however brief, where there had been tears. He saw fellowship where there had been loneliness. He saw hope where there had been despair. I also wrote about this passage in my blog earlier this fall. I'm just not sure that works. What does it mean to be a believer in stories that you know are not true? Are we really able as human beings at the end of the day to manufacture hope? Hey, I am adrift in an absurd world, but here are some nice, pleasant stories that I can tell myself to paper over it all. If that's where you are, very possibly a dark night of your own soul is calling and you may want to have a sit down. And incidentally, as we use the word and think about the concept of hope, there is a bit of difference between hope in the biblical mindset and worldview and how we'll commonly talk about hope. So hope in the biblical world is not about aspiration. It's about conviction. It's not just about, I hope for this aspirationally, but it's being convicted about it. And there's nothing wrong with the way that most of us use hope most of the time. So I might say, I hope that Jalen Hurts has progressed enough as a passer that he's not just going to be schemed against in the playoffs and loading up on the run game, but it's going to be different for him this year in the playoffs. I hope. I hope the Phillies haven't peaked, and it's just going to be diminishing returns for every year after this. I hope that James Harden has not gained 30 pounds in the couple of weeks that he's been on the injured list right now before he comes back. Those are cross your fingers, aspirational, and probably not going to come true. Hopes. That's aspiration. But convictional hope is when you're looking to the future, hopefully, because you know it's going to happen. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament says, for example, about this kind of hope we see in action, I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to keep it until the last day. So what are you hoping in? Painting in broad brush strokes here, but if it's not Jesus, 
And even if you're here as a Christian, we can hope in things that are besides Jesus if we're not careful. What are your brand X's? Maybe things that you have, or you say, if I just have this, or if just this changes, then I will be a hope-filled person. And I get it, but whether it's a job situation, a financial situation, a health situation, a romantic situation, a global situation, think in your mind, what are you hoping in? And if it's any of those things, understand your hope is fallible. That hope may not come through for you. Be honest in the mirror and see if you can't, by faith, move towards surer hope in Jesus. So let's look at verse 15 again. Is there hope in this passage? Or to put it another way, is this justifiably, in Genesis chapter 3.15, a messianic, prophetic, looking ahead to the Messiah to come fulfilled in Jesus, text or not? Let's consider the evidence, and frankly speaking, there are some, a fair contingent that would say, no. Let's look at it again. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Why not? Well, that word offspring, it can also be interpreted seed. Most commonly, it's a collective word. So when God is talking about the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent, talking about groups of people. And so, for example, in Jewish interpretation, both before Jesus and after Jesus, this passage was not considered messianic. And instead, the offspring of the woman was simply the nation of Israel. And so there will be enmity between evil and Israel that is just ongoing. And even in the ancient and early church, it was about half and half, the interpreters that said this is messianic versus those that are not. But another reason why this might not be messianic, the word bruise, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's the same word. This isn't speaking of one epic battle when one's going to conquer the other. It just speaks to ongoing strife. There will be a cycle of violence and oppression in the world. That's all it's going to be. It's going to keep going. Also some evidence here as well. Genesis 3.15 is not directly and explicitly quoted in the New Testament anywhere. And there's a ton of Old Testament that's quoted in the New Testament, including in a little while with Abraham, where, for example, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. That is all over the place in the New Testament. This is not quoted here. So we can ask the question, is there hope here in this passage? But we transition from hope tentative to hope fulfilled. In my opinion, is this a messianic passage? I'll say yes. Flickering, but burning with hope. Veiled, mysterious, but I believe that it's there and appropriate for this stage of God's revelation. It's so early. And it's anachronistic to expect that a messianic prophecy this early in the biblical record, even though God knows everything that he's going to do, you're not going to get an excerpt from the Nazarene phone book circa 0 AD, at this point in the scriptures. So it's not going to be, you're cursed, on your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Just look 
2,000 years, Back to the Future 2 style, Christ, comma, J, with a phone number and an address and a Twitter handle and everything else. So it's more veiled than that, but of course it is, and isn't that kind of how hope feels? Here's the great thing about humanity. For us to keep going and press ahead, and I'll say again, that Andor show is really, really good. All we need is a little bit of hope. And we keep pushing. We keep pressing. And that's what this passage gives us, while we also recognize as well, give the offspring, give the seed time to grow, and the flame burns. So even if this verse is not directly, explicitly quoted in the New Testament. If you've been here with us this fall in the sermon series, as we get into the Abraham cycle, there is language of offspring and seed over and over again, all over the place. To your offspring, I will give the land, and you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this promise here is in the main vein, the I-95 of God's covenant promises that are rumbling forward through Abraham through Moses, through King David, and yes, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And Paul mentions this offspring motif and word at a key point, and I think I referenced this verse about Abraham in relation to Abraham earlier this fall in Galatians chapter 3. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to his offsprings, there's that collective word back and forth referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Christ is the offspring of the woman. Now, if we look at the evidence just one more time, I think it's there. Yes, the word bruise is used twice, but it's two different locations. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That location difference is decisive. If you take a blow to the heel, unless you're Achilles, you'll probably be okay. And that's the whole conceit of the Achilles heel story originally. Nobody gets felled by a blow to the heel. Of course not. But if you take a blow to the head, that's an entirely different story. It could be fatal. And there are some Christian interpreters over the years, both ancient and modern, that have said, ah, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise your heel? Wait a second. If the offspring of the woman is bruised in the heel, that is absolutely talking about the wounds in Jesus' feet on the cross. To me, that's a little bit of an overinterpretation, but we don't need to overinterpret. What this verse says instead is that the seed will suffer. The seed will suffer. The offspring of the woman will suffer which is fulfilled in the cross. And then when the offspring of the woman bruises the head of the seed of the serpent on the cross, it's Jesus of Nazareth that crushes the serpent and death and conquers it. And so we're able to say, like that candle burning in the night or in a dark room, Flickering, yes, but the messianic prophetic flame.
flame of this passage burns and gives us hope. It's fulfilled in Jesus. And this is where we'll wrap up. I was just kidding about the liturgical dance. For hope to be real, it needs to be a couple of things, more than a couple of things, but I'll mention these two. For hope to be real in our lives, it needs to reckon with reality. It needs to grapple with the here and now of the messiness and the toil and tears and pain of our lives. If it doesn't, then that hope has no connection to our own reality, right? It's just pie in the sky. It has nothing. It's never going to touch this reality. But even within this passage itself, it reckons with the messy reality of our lives. Jesus was born of a woman. And if the woman is cursed in this way, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. You can go back to Eric's sermon for a fuller explanation of these curses here. But Jesus, born of a woman, came through the problems and pain and toil of that sphere, reckoned with it. And then also the curse upon Adam. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken... For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. As a carpenter, as an itinerant prophet, Jesus of Nazareth toiled. In his life on earth, he hungered, and in his death on the cross, he thirsted. He reckoned with these hard realities. And then on the cross itself, Jesus reckoned with the problem, the pain, the problems, and the toil of our sin and satisfied God's wrath, paid the penalty for sin on our cross to give the offer by faith of forgiveness and transformation and life to all that believe. But it is a reckoned offer and a reckoned promise. Jesus' hope reckons with reality, and if your hope needs to be real, how do we know it's, it's dependable and real? It's also got to promise something better. If you're hoping in something that actually doesn't promise anything better than what you got, that, that's not hope. That's just duration of time. But Jesus promises something better. Namely, in Jesus, our destination is not dust. It's not dust. And it's true. In a fallen world, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. But that's not the end. I'll leave you with a passage that I would encourage you to go back and read again. It's a little dense, but the Apostle Paul at the end of the 1 Corinthian letter, chapter 15, draws an analogy, a typology between Jesus as the last Adam and Adam as the first one. There's a connection. Listen to what Paul says. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, Jesus, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, 
we also bear the image of the man of heaven. So by, by faith, we await not dust, but a new heavens and a new earth. This Advent season, where is your hope? And would you find it in Jesus? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.